0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm
1: Chris Grayton. I'm Cecilia Ilmaz.
0: Today on the program, we're welcoming back actually one of our earliest guests, Sylvia Wing-Onder, who's a teaching professor in both the departments of uh, Anthropology and Arabic and Islamic Studies at Georgetown University. Dr. Onder is actually my first Turkish teacher from a few years back at Georgetown when I was doing my master's and uh, to a large extent is part of why we have this Ottoman history podcast today. So, uh, Dr. Onda, it's great to have you on the program again.
2: It's so nice to be back and I've watched this program grow and expand with such pride. I, I think it's really a terrific, uh, program that you run here and I am always very interested to see what comes up here.
0: Well, we appreciate the kind words and in fact, I'm glad to finally speak with you, uh, about your, uh, your book we have no microbes here which was uh, released uh, a few years back i believe in 2007 yes um uh, a really fantastic piece of medical anthropology or medical ethno- ethnography we could say that looks at the intersection of uh, household and uh, medicine uh, in a black sea village uh, which we'll talk about your fieldwork in just a second, and really fits in well with uh, two, two running series we have going on Ottoman History Podcast, one of them being our, city, our series on women and gender, which highlights uh, women as historical actors, but in this case we're going to be talking about the present, nonetheless women as actors, and also our series on history of science, which deals not only with science as uh, strictly defined, but medicine, cosmology, and all the things that make up what people believe about the natural world. I think your research uh, in this Black Sea Village uh, with women and their interaction with both medical institutions and uh, healing practices and whatnot uh, really has a lot to say to the historiography uh, of uh, disease and medicine in the Ottoman world and sort of some of the assumptions that people may hold about peasant or villager beliefs regarding medicine. So uh, let's get right into it. Before we get get to our, our themes of uh, women in medicine, I guess we could say, why don't you tell us a little bit about your field work that you, you conducted in Turkey?
2: So when I went to the Black Sea coast of Turkey, to a little town outside of Fatsa in the province mm. of Ordu, yeah. I wasn't expecting to research women in particular, and I wasn't expecting to do anything about medicine. It wasn't really my field at the time. I was interested in studying the knowledge that elderly people have. Mm -hmm. So I was already interested in speaking with uh, older villagers about how things have changed over time. The problem with older villagers on the Black Sea coast is their accent is extremely difficult to follow if you've been trained only in modern standard TV Turkish. So there was a lot of uh, intergenerational use where I would be talking with a little old lady and her grandchild would be translating for me oh. into standard Turkish so that I could understand what was going on. Um, so I found that along with the knowledge of the past and the way things used to be was a whole kind of language, a whole set of ideas about the way the world works. Mm. And they realized from talking with me that I that I knew nothing about these things
0: and that I needed yeah. an education. So they were things that they would have taken for granted as part of their own uh, worldview sort of came out through these uh, points of, uh, I guess, ambiguity in a sense uh, for you in understanding, right?
2: Right, and the biggest display of ignorance that I had was in my status as a new mother. I had a three-month-old baby and it was clear to the people who were watching me take care of my Mm -hmm. infant— that I didn't know what I was doing and that I needed a lot of advice. So they which they they poured advice in my direction. I mean
0: what was the most egregious thing that you did according well, to Well
2: I I knew that uh, for instance modesty would be important so that it would be important not to breastfeed in a public way uh-huh. or you know, to to be inappropriate for for the sake of modesty. I didn't realize the threat of Nazar or the evil eye yeah. that can accrue Um, to a nursing mother and harm the child. Evil eye can accrue to a baby because of the interest that it um, attracts. And the next connection that I never would have made myself, coming from my cultural background, was it's exactly the same process that can harm the milk supply of a cow. So, of course, I was a little shocked to be put in the same category as a dairy animal Uh, as a nursing mother. But from the rural standpoint, this is exactly the same process, exactly the same problems can occur. And it's a life and death matter. Yeah, Babies and, and calves need to be cared for carefully. And it's the elderly women who really know how to make sure this all goes right.
0: And for those who adhere to a rigidly scientific worldview, these are simply folk beliefs, or maybe even we would call them superstitions that might be written off if they don't have any scientific explanation. But what you did is uh, sort of, as one should, take them uh, seriously for what they are and investigate further.
2: It was those moments of shock when I said, you can't be serious. This can't be the way you think. The way you think is so different from the way I think. It's those moments when you either become an anthropologist... And say, yeah. there's got to be a system here. This has to make sense somehow, even if I can't figure it out at the moment. Or you give up and say, these are crazy backward people with superstitious ideas that need to be, you know, given up and put in the past.
0: And so your monograph, uh, We Have No Microbes Here, really centers on all these beliefs about uh, health and and the natural world that you uh, encountered in uh, during your fieldwork.
2: There were a few um, ideas that were very common uh, when I told people that I was studying Turkey. The first one was that women in Turkey have no power. So I was interested in looking at this question. In the, fil- in the realm of health care and taking care of the family, the women, uh, especially in a rural situation yeah. in Turkey, have all the power. They, they control the decisions. They are respected for their knowledge. Um, everyone goes to them first they 're the primary caregivers um and then they they have all kinds of say in what happens if other kinds of health care should be pursued yeah so the um the sort of outsider view that men have all the power because they have the public sphere is completely uh balanced in the Turkish model by how much the private sphere is controlled by women
0: and this and this would be especially in the village setting as Am I to understand when you say the outsider view, it's maybe both the urban view from people living in Istanbul uh, of the uh, vil- villagers in the Black Sea, for example, sure. as well as foreigners. Is that what you're referring sure. to?
2: The um, westernized Turkish culture is equally uh, prejudiced against the worldview of villagers, mm. rural people. They, it's it's equally easy to hear um, phrases that suggest a lack of respect for traditional knowledge among urban Turks who Mm -hmm. have had a modern Western-style education. Um, But the second uh, concept that I needed to work with is that traditional knowledge naturally fades away and that someone who supports traditional knowledge would naturally be against modern medicine. Mm.
0: Sort of an either-or.
2: Right. And and what you find out as... um, folklorists and anthropologists, ethnographers have found out all around the world, is that people are pragmatic when it comes to health. If the first thing that's suggested doesn't bring good results, they'll go to the second thing. If someone has a friend who's had something work well, they'll try that. People are very practical and they don't just insist on one thing. Mm-hmm. If one thing works, they'll insist that it's a good thing. But if it doesn't work or it's not enough, uh, people will keep keep trying different things. So the villagers have a clinic, and they respect their doctor in the clinic, and they respect their midwives and their nurses. That's a state clinic. Mm -hmm. It's very small, and it's not um, luxurious. Uh, If you want luxury kind of health care, you have to go to a private hospital, and it's very expensive. But basic care is provided in the clinic, and there's a tension between the way life has always been lived, and things like uh, vaccinations, which are state policy. Yeah. Every child must be vaccinated at a, in a regular schedule, um, and this is a requirement for school, for example. But people don't really understand what it is other than something like taxes that they just have to do. There's there's very little understanding that a shot is good for you in some way. There's There's not a lot of explanation about why vaccination yeah. has a healthy outcome. It's just something you have to do and when the mothers were required to bring their very young infants down to the clinic for their vaccinations, they had a very low participation rate. So, they decided to take the ambulance of the clinic and drive around to homes and take the vaccinations to the babies because the mothers did it they weren't resisting the idea of Getting their babies vaccinated, they knew it was dangerous to take their baby out of the home when it was so young. Uh, Take it on a long walking trip, you know, in all kinds of weather, down to the clinic, get a vaccination, and then walk all the way home. As we know, babies do get sick after vaccinations. It's often a, a, a side effect of of having a shot, you know, a little bit of a fever and so forth. So, if you add to that a big long trip. Uh, mothers are, are actually being rational in resisting taking their babies down to the clinic. Yeah. So when the clinic started listening to what the parents were actually saying, they decided to take their donated ambulance and drive around and vaccinate all the babies that needed to be vaccinated at home.
0: And it points to that tension that you, that you mentioned. It's, it's not actually the medical knowledge that is the threat, but rather the other institutional or structural features of the modern medicine that were creating a problem in implementation.
1: So that's for the the case for the infants. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I remember what I read from your writings is that people, have an, people in the village have a particular understanding of care, mm-hmm. especially medical care, yeah. outside of the home. So they have a particular understanding of hospital, no matter how they feel comfortable with the doctor or more like state institutions. So the the tension for adults has a different dimension. Can you a little bit um, tell us about um, what are the tensions and how this elderly woman come into that uh, picture? Sure. Well, one of the important
2: foundations of family care is a concept of ilgi, which means showing concern, showing care, mm. paying attention. And this is something that we all hopefully expect from our close family and friends. Yeah. Nice. Uh, some care, some the concern. <laughs> Someone notices if you're not feeling well and suggests something that might help. Uh, when you take that basic sort of human concern for the well-being of others and expect it from a state institution, it's highly likely that you'll be Disappointed. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, uh, doctors and nurses are often trained in bedside manner. They're trained to show interest, but they're not taught that interest is the fundamental thing that they're doing. All right. So you have a family that takes a family member to the hospital, and then they are quite critical that the poorly paid, overworked uh, medical professionals are not showing proper interest not not paying close enough attention, not showing enough concern. And it might surprise uh, American listeners that being a hospital patient in a public hospital in Turkey usually means that your family brings your pillows and your sheets and changes your laundry mm-hmm. and feeds you special food from home. Um, we tend to think, oh, doesn't that destroy the sanitary nature of the hospital. Well, the families who take their family members to the state hospitals in Turkey are very alarmed by the bad sanitary conditions in the hospital. Yes, and they are ensuring right. sanitary sheets, towels, and good food, not bad food, by bringing it in themselves. Because there's
1: family. a concept of hospital food, if you don't like a food, yeah, right? Sure. So mm-hmm. it's uh, hospital food. And so
2: you can imagine medical doctors and nurses being a little bit frustrated with family members who say, you know, oh, they have to eat this kind of soup and they have to drink that kind of tea and they shouldn't have this. And so there might be some disagreements. Yeah. But um, I think that, like I said, the the hospital workers are overstretched. Mm-hmm. The budgets are, are low and there's only so much attention that they c- can give. So it's a it's a system where the family stays very much yeah. involved in the care of the family member,
1: right? And and one of the other interventions uh, that I so I mean I read in your book is is about the concept of filth, and in when it comes to this tension yeah. between the hospital and the home care, to be in the hospital, that there is the word microbe in the title of your book. So I just want to move to that. Um, what it means for two for for the villagers, the microbe filth, How do they like define it? Sure. Well, uh,
2: it's very easy to think of a of the farming life as dirty,
1: exactly. Because yeah. there's
2: a lot. You know, you work hard. You you do get filthy. There's there's physical dirt on you when you right. finish yeah. working in the fields, and there's animals, and there's uh, the use of manure and. You know, mm-hmm. there's things that urban people consider filthy that in the rural setting, the problem of filth is dirt out of place. Uh, it's Dirt isn't a problem when you're growing crops in it. It's a problem when you get it in your bed, for example. right? So there's a lot of care taken to keep the inside of the house clean despite how dirty everything is outside. So uh, there's a lot of... Um, very strong traditions about what is clean and what is dirty and villagers are very insulted that city people think they're dirty as, as a, as a category. Yeah. Right. So there's some class dimensions to that, right? Rich people are, can be cleaner because of all the products they use and all the access they have to hot water Mm -hmm. and electricity. They don't farm farmers, farmers get dirty. Um, so in a farming community, the problem with illness and dirt is di- how did dirt get out of place? So is someone living a dirty life? Are they unable to keep their children clean? Are they morally problematic, in which case moral filth becomes a, a health, health yeah. risk? Uh, and then this term microbe. So filth is a, is a term coming from eons ago. I'm sure Mm -hmm. we've always had that word. Microbe is a recent word. And so I was asking an elderly lady about microbes, and she said, oh, yes, yes, I know about that. They have that in the city. But thank God, God (laughs) may prevent it. We don't have it here. And that's where I got the title for Mm -hmm. my book. So another common stereotype about villagers is that they're ignorant, Right? So people wouldn't be surprised, oh, this old lady doesn't even know what a microbe is. Mm-hmm. But she know like she has a concept, she knows what we're talking about. She uses the term, but she uses it in a way that shows that her cosmology, the way she's thinking about the world is totally different. That's and right. so the contrast between in home birth and hospital birth is a great place to talk about concepts of sanitation. Right most village women have their birth at home and they know their house is clean because they have taken care of it themselves or they have Mm -hmm. people come and help them. The house is the cleanest place. Getting in a car, getting in an ambulance, going to the city, going into a room with complete strangers who are lined up, ready to give birth with a doctor you've never seen before. That seems like unsanitary conditions right? Yeah. to them. And so the doctors are saying, no, no, home births, that's filthy. They have manure. They have these traditions where they, you know, they cut the cord with, uh, you know, a, a kitchen knife. You know, they have, yeah. doctors have a very um, particular concept of what sterility is and why it's important. Uh, so these two concepts are in uh, big, big conflict.
1: So th- But I think there is also the element of authority when it comes to this uh, male figure who's wearing a white um, dress and saying what is right and what is wrong. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there is an elderly woman where there is a level of intimacy coming from the past that someone that you know from different contexts in your everyday life and someone that you can go for care, for personal care with more intimacy. And what is really interesting, despite all these tensions, the person, the, the elderly woman has, an, um, in, in, in your context, there, there is an order of things in her mind. She gives the first care, but then she says, you'd better see a doctor if this doesn't work. So this is really interesting. This is very important. For for us and for the audiences to be able to understand what does authority mean yeah. for the elderly woman, what does um what does this uh, tension also actually can come to a point of surrendering to this other mode of uh, medical care? So how do you see that? It's um, a it's a
2: great avenue. Um, as as you, I'm sure you know, Foucault has a, a theory about the birth of the clinic, right? And one of the cases that he takes up very specifically is the shift from traditional midwives giving uh, assisting births yeah. to male doctors being in charge of birth mm. and managing birth and engineering birth with tools. The forceps is just a, a kind of set of hands right. that can wrap around the baby's head and pull. Uh, so it's it's putting. Uh, a technological thing between the person helping with birth and the and the baby, but it's it's based on traditional birthing methods. Uh, in the village where I studied, uh, there's like in the rest of Turkey, there's been a strong push to prevent certain kinds of traditional practices. So traditional midwives have been uh, They've had a lot of propaganda against them in the, in the national media as causing harm, causing infant death and maternal right. death and being unsterile and so forth in the same way that happened uh, in Europe and North America mm-hmm. to, to give the authority to, to doctors to, to sort of manage and control birth. In the case of the village where I studied, the state-trained midwife was an 18-year-old single woman. The problem mm. with that in the local concept is if she's single, she doesn't know about sex. She shouldn't know about sex. And yeah. if she doesn't know about sex, how does she know about birth? And how is she <laughs> going to help? How How will she even be able to look where she needs to look with just school training? Huh. So... This was kind of a, a problem. How is this 18-year-old going to be our village midwife? The interesting thing was her grandmother was a traditional midwife. Right. This is probably why she wanted to be a midwife herself. So now every, every villager in every village around Turkey has a cell phone in their pocket. It's, it, people are very connected through right. technology. She gets in a little bit of a pickle she just picks up the phone and says, "Grandma, could you come down and take a look at this?" <laughs> and and the women giving birth don't mind, right? All the bases are covered. State authority uh-huh. is present. Right. The young woman has been properly trained. She knows how to fill out the report. She she's literate. But actually when a problem occurs, she can she can rely on her grandmother who actually knows how to turn babies and yeah. you know how to calm a, a mother who's who's getting panicky and right. things like that.
0: I mean it's interesting to hear you talk about this dynamic sort of in more contemporary period because such a maybe you can talk about it in greater depth when Ottoman medical institutions began to transform during the 19th centuries you had a similar dynamic going on between the state and the midwives.
1: Exactly um between the state and the midwives and between uh state and the um Unregistered local pharmacists and doctors. So, um, to our knowledge, it's, it, it looks like I mean the, the way we the way we know it, there's this huge tension. But to my findings, actually, there is a big exchange between the um, official medical yeah. practice and the local practice, and mainly the reason is the absence of an educated. Um, or the, the way how have state calls it like educated doctors. Sure. So, um, and for the case of midwife again, um, to be able to make sure that there are people who can take care of the healthcare in small places, um, they kind of decriminalized uh, the state decriminalized uh, midwifery uh, practice, but try to license them uh, so that they will know uh, who is performing. Um, um medical care so that they can follow it. So yeah, th- th- it's a very interesting similar uh tension. Uh, but of course um there is an historical component to mm-hmm. what we're talking about here. Um where in, in the history of modern Turkey um medicine became one of the strongest engines of uh, modernization and development mm-hmm. and the state authority. So what uh-huh. I, I hear here, um, um, what we are talking about here is very interesting in that sense, to how authority is negotiated, how um, medical care is negotiated between many different actors in a very small Mm -hmm. place like that.
2: If I can add a bit to the historical dimension, which, as you know, is not my field, um, in history, Islamic medicine has been a very highly developed science. Right. Right. Yeah. with books and specialists and surgeries and um, all kinds of official and typically male-dominated right. professional practice. Yeah. And I think those doctors of the traditional Islamic medicine were probably the most harmed by the new state medicine based mm-hmm. on uh, biomedical models, yeah. uh, specifically coming from Europe. The traditional home medicine or village medicine was not respected by the new type of medicine, and so yeah. it was it was often left to just continue as long as these worlds didn't collide. I
0: right? mean, it's, it's a very interesting perspective. It's as if the rival of quote unquote scientific Western medicine was in fact the uh, indigenous. Scientific medicine in place, and that this other realm of care and and medicine, which as we're we learning is is very important, uh, was sort of uh, peripheral to that main conflict, is what you're saying.
2: Let me put the home in the center, not in the periphery. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, a
2: family is the center of care, uh-huh. and if care cannot be provided in that circle, okay. people will go further out in In history, in past times, people would go out for perhaps a religious person Uh to to give a prayer that would have a healthy benefit, Uh, or they could go to someone who extracts teeth or performs surgery, and these would be the sort of professional medical doctors coming from the Greco-Islamic tradition. Based Absolutely. on you know humors and and um, things like herbal medicines and concoctions and leaching bleeding, there there was a very highly developed yes. traditional and professionalized type of medicine. Mm-hmm. So, what happens is families still are the first recourse. You you might be calling your relative who lives in Germany for advice, but there's you're calling them first because. Yeah, they're your family, and they will show you ilgi. And then, if that isn't sufficient, then you start going outside. And now you can you can find some herbalists still in Turkey, mm-hmm. um, yes. and you can find some people who uh, produce spells and and prayers for health benefits, mm-hmm. but they keep a pretty low profile because they're highly suspect by by the national health and religious authorities who, who don't want that kind of thing mm-hmm. happening. Um, and so the the ways that Islamic medicine and traditional medicine have come into biomedicine in Turkey is through things like research being done on the properties of indigenous plants. Yeah. So right. looking to see what the real, you know, this is in quotations, the real chemical basis is yeah. for a traditional cure. Right. Right. So there's quite a lot of that. Turks are very proud of traditional m- medical practices that turn out to be proven by science as effective,
0: and none more so, th- of course, than yogurt, which of is course. now yeah. <laughs> becoming a cure-all not only in Turkey but also for many many problems uh, in the United States. Yogurt, in the only Turkish word in the English language. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Sechili Yilmaz talking to Professor Sylvia Wing Under about her her, uh, medical anthropological research in Turkey, uh, which has been published in her monograph, We Have No Microbes Here. You can check out our webpage, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com, for the bibliographical information on that work as well as other works of interest uh, for today's subject. Uh, Professor Onder, when listening to the way in which you described uh, the home as sort of the center of care and that the family is sort of the first recourse for medical care, but also medical authority, sort of like within this power structure, uh, and thinking about how tensions uh, arose between state and family, not for epistemological reasons but more you know political reasons we could say essentially it reminded me of you know some of my own research on malaria in turkey during the early republican period and how doctors used uh, methods uh, much like you described sort of working with the local village populations to figure out how to get them to submit to one of the most invasive things that you can imagine, which is a medical examination. This is in a period where it was hard to count people for the census, so you can imagine how measuring people's spleens would create all sorts of... Anyway, I won't go on about that, but in the end, with with the malaria campaigns, after a few years, they started to actually recruit people to the cause, and it became a, a, a united cause to a greater extent uh, in many parts of region, uh, many parts of Turkey was where malaria is endemic. So, I want to ask you, from your own research and building on what we've been talking about thus far, where and when do people say we need to work with uh, the medical institutions? We need to work with the state. When does the family make that decision, and and how does it play out?
2: Well, one of the things that uh, I bring up in my book is the concept of permission, or izin. Mm-hmm. And it can be seen in all kinds of aspects of, of Turkish life. If you imagine a hall pass from a classroom, mm-hmm. your teacher gives you permission to go down the hall, and if you don't have that permission, you get in trouble. Yeah. So a lot of uh, there's a lot of social management in Turkey. People mm-hmm. always want to make sure that you're not where you shouldn't be, and that Everyone who should know about what you're doing knows about it. Mm -hmm. So people are very careful, um, for instance, to if they're going to make a trip to a city hospital, they sort of need a lot of consultation. Families need to get together. First of all, if you're going to the city, it's going to require a car or a bus or some kind of transportation. That will cost something. And then which kind of hospital you're going to go to. So it's typically... Uh managed among women, everyday care is managed among women without much discussion. Um, even the patient doesn't really mm-hmm. get consulted very much. It, the, um, patients are supposed to be quiet and, and <laughs> passive. Uh, it's other people who are going to fix them okay. and talk about them. Um, But if you need money, if you need transportation, if it's going to be a trip, if it's going to be maybe an overnight stay in a hospital, then more people in the family need to be consulted. So that's when husbands, brothers, grandparents start to get involved in the decisions. And if, if there's a disagreement, this can cause problems down the line. For instance, if the Trip to the hospital does not get a good result. You can have the person who wasn't for it saying, I told you so. Yeah. Um, and this can sort of lead to a fracture in family relations. So people typically try to make sure that all relevant people have been consulted. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of a broken bone, if I can bring it to, to bone setting, mm-hmm. um it's it's hard for us to imagine that a fast ambulance trip to a good hospital wouldn't be the best thing for a broken bone. But yeah. in the village setting, you fall out of a tree or you fall off your roof, you break your bone, the hospital is miles away, it's going to take forever to get there, and when you get there, the reputation of the hospital is not very good, you're not sure that you're going to get very good care, and people have stories of bones that were set improperly and then had to be rebroken mm-hmm. to be set. The traditional bone setter is your neighbor. She's right there when you fall off the roof. She knows what a broken bone is. She's got painkillers from the local pharmacy. She puts your wrenched shoulder right back in its socket when it's when it's just come out. It's local, it's fast, and it doesn't involve money. She, she doesn't take payment for her care she takes gifts in kind down the line. And so when you when you when we think about hospital medicine, we always think of the ideal hospital, the doctor with the perfect training who's had mm-hmm. enough sleep yeah. who's um, you know not worried about his insurance paper filing um, and the doctor is right there ready to take you as soon as you arrive you know, from a very short trip from wherever you are. When people in a rural setting think about the hospital, that's not the hospital that they have experience with. Absolutely not, yeah. So the bone setter is illegal. She's actually not allowed to do what she's doing. But when the doctor in the local clinic called this woman and said, I see that you're very good at this. I want you to work with me but you have to come down to the clinic and you have to do it in the clinic you can't walk around doing bone setting freelance mm-hmm. right. you need to be in the in the clinic so that you have the sanction um of the state she said how can i come to the clinic i'm a mother i have two small children i have a cow how you know i can't just leave home and sit 9 to 5 in the clinic how will i even know someone will come on any given day yeah so the the model of neighborly care where an, certain elderly women become midwives, certain elderly women become bone setters, there's a, there's an elaborate type of training that she underwent from her grandmother. Yeah. Um she wasn't just making it up as she went along. She was yeah. a trained bone setter. But it it suits the rural agricultural lifestyle. And if you try right. to set it up in a different place like come to the clinic and we'll give you a salary and you'll work 9 to 5. It, it doesn't it's fit just it's gonna not
0: going to work right that's what, i mean it makes you think about how even geography but also you know economic and structural unevenness play such a, a large role in the outcomes of people's medical decisions which as you're saying here are quite well thought out and not merely like Um, sort of traditional or reactionary responses to to modern medicine. But, you know, at the same time, uh, the things you're saying will probably remind our Anglophone listeners of things that happen in their own medical decisions in the United States, Uh, the same sort of questions that come up. And you reminded me of the story of a friend who we won't mention by name, And hopefully, we aren't revealing too much medical history. But who had also broken a bone uh, in France, had received improper care, and only while visiting family in Turkey, having that family care, people who look after her, she actually got to go to a proper hospital and have proper care for indeed what was a broken uh, bone. So it's interesting to see how. uh,
1: Family's part of the story. Yeah, family
0: is a big part of the story in that particular story.
2: And modern medicine has its appealing facets.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, in my book, I tell the story of a man who broke his bone. He went all the way to the city. He got his x-rays. He got his, a cast put on his arm. He got his painkillers. And he came, he came back, and he went straight to the bone setter, and he said, Take this, cut this off, and fix my bone. And they said, "Well, what, what? Why did you do all this?" And he's like, "Look at the, these X rays. I can see the inside of. Them. I can see my broken bone." So people understand the, that there's there's an appeal, there's an interest uh-huh. to what medicine offers, but it's not necessarily the benefit that we assume is the benefit of, uh-huh. of medical practice. Sure.
1: So we talked about like um, in exchanges and tensions between two two um, spatial and temporally different settings and understandings of medicine, health, yeah. body. Yeah. But I'm really curious about today. There is like a kind of a return to um, herbal medicine, homemade medicine, like even there is a a Mehmet Oz reality, right? Like he's an an established doctor who actually gives a lot of everyday life, uh, practical information. So again, we're in a new setting about understanding of health and body and um, how to take care of our own, um, like this whole individuality is coming into picture. So how do you see um, the future of elderly women, for example? And uh, because the boundaries between urban and village is also like changing every day. And also in a very broader sense, in the urban, how people show interest to herbal solutions and it has to do with like insurance systems and everything.
2: Sure. Well, I see a big connection um, in the passing on of traditional knowledge in the field of organic farming. So what we've done is we've devalued traditional knowledge to such an extent that the chain has been broken in most places, Uh, the chain of transmission from a family member to a family member. So this is important for farming because farmers know their specific local conditions and climate and animals and everything, and they've figured out the best way to produce goods. Now we have organic farmers who have to learn everything off the internet Right, which which is maybe not based on their local conditions, maybe not gonna, it, you know, and and so the farm, the organic farmer who who is just an idealist setting up on their own, mm-hmm. right. it doesn't benefit from these generations of of practical knowledge, yeah. and the same is true with health, right? Just because you can, it, it's very popular to go into a Turkish um, coffee shop and ask for herbal tea, and it's just a mishmash of herbs, right? Who knows what it's good for? Who knows what your yeah. problem is? Why are you drinking this? You're drinking it because supposedly it's herbal and supposedly it's good for you. But what, it, what is specifically good for you and what you need is best understood by someone who actually knows you, right? right? You can have your fortune read on the internet now. That's you can hilarious. someone can look at your coffee grounds someone can you can say i have a stomach ache and a doctor on the internet will tell you what to do about it right but the chain is broken right and so until we start respecting traditional knowledge passed on from person to person in a thoughtful and careful way, not just for capitalistic purposes, right. but because of actual care yeah. and interest in the other humans, we're not going to benefit from any craze in organic farming or traditional medicine huh. that, that isn't grounded in real social relations.
1: Right. So we should go back to the villages.
2: We should stop treating villagers as if they're ignorant Right. Yes. because there's no villager t- anywhere who doesn't want their child to get a college degree. Right. And in order to get that college degree, they have to stop farming. They have mm-hmm. to leave the farm. They have to put all their attention into passing standardized tests. You can't be a farmer after you've spent all of your education years mm-hmm. Getting ready for for the university yeah. test. You you you've missed out. So until we start respecting traditional knowledge, we're not going to have any young people who want to stay and learn it. Right. Their yeah. their parents are going to be exactly. sending them away.
0: And I mean that's why your research fits so well with sort of some of the other things that have been discussed in our series on history of science. Uh, history of science today is all about restoring the socio-political context of the production and, and, and transfer of knowledge and understanding that uh, knowledge actually moves between people who are operating with all, within, within all of these institutional frameworks. Indeed, a lot of our things today that are considered uh, medical science are techniques or discoveries that may have well been made by somebody's grandmother in a village, some herb that turned out to work for something for centuries, When a scientist touches it, it becomes uh, respected knowledge, and then you have uh, the sort of universalization that we talk about. And it becomes a commodity. Exactly. It
2: becomes a product for sale.
0: And so... Looking backwards in time from uh, medical decisions in the present as opposed to, uh, you know, researching, let's say, the early modern period, it's, it sort of strengthens uh, that overall critique provided by uh, history of science today. And so we're really glad to, that you came by uh, and sat down with us to, in Istanbul to talk about your research on the podcast today.
2: This has been really great. I wish you all the best with, with your project going into the future.
0: Thanks, and likewise. Now, for those who want to learn more about today's topic, as I mentioned, we have a bibliography on our website ottoman History com where you can also leave your comments and questions. You can use that as a launching pad to get in touch with our Facebook community. now over twenty thousand people following Ottoman History Podcast or at least liking it on Facebook, whatever that means uh, That's where you can keep up to date with our latest episodes as well as other content from our partner sites uh, and items of general interest for people. Uh, who are enthusiasts of ottoman history uh, and learning about the ottoman and post-ottoman worlds Um, we want to invite you all to uh, tune in to our next installments of our history of science and our uh, women and gender series on ottoman history podcast Uh, we look forward to joining you again in those subsequent episodes and until then take care